My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Hi, my name is Pin, and I'm a VP at Lightspeed Ventures Partners. I'm excited to host this series on the secrets of venture building in emerging markets. Let's hear from my guest today. Hello, everyone. This is Pin, and I'm a venture investor at Lightspeed Ventures Partner. Welcome to my show. This is a mini series that will explore the challenges and best practices of venture building in emerging markets through conversations with leading investors and founders across Asia, uh, particularly in China, India, and Southeast Asia. Today, I'm super excited to have my colleague uh, and managing director, Bejo Somaya, to join us today. Bejo is someone, you know, I would really consider annoyingly successful. He has achieved so many things, you know, in the last decade or two, both in guiding unicorns and, you know, building teams of venture capitalists here in India. And so, you know, um, so much to uh, learn from him today. Welcome to the show, Bejo. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me here. Quick intro, because I always feel like people don't do a very good intro of themselves. So quick intro about Bajal. You know, Bajal is a partner at uh, Lightspeed India, which is an early stage venture firm affiliated with Lightspeed Ventures Partner with one of $10 billion under management. Bajal has about 20 years of operating entrepreneurial investment experience in India and in the US. And under his leadership, you know, Lightspeed Investment in India, which includes IEX, Oyo Rooms, Baiju, Cherchat, Udan, has been one of India's, you know, best performing funds ever. Bajal, you know, you want to tell us maybe a little bit of a story of how you ended up being a venture investor. Yeah, I'm happy to, Pin. Um, so this is my, my second uh, round or innings as a, as a venture investor. I first uh, had this experience in the US in 2001, right after the dot-com crash. I'd been a, an entrepreneur at an early stage company. And when that company was acquired, I joined one of the venture investors for a couple of years. And that was really my first taste of the business, after which I got, you know, or during that time, I got incre- incredibly envious of uh, founders that were pitching to me. Um, and, uh, and so in 2003, I, I went back to start a company, you know, and then came back from my second innings in 2008. And by that time, Pin, I think I really had gotten to know myself a little bit better. And one of the things that I, I, I learned about myself was that I really like to have direct impact and high impact. And, and also that I, I wasn't perhaps the best manager of people and the best person to, to uh, enable impact through a large number of other people. And so when I, I thought about that, I love being around amazing people with incredible ideas and energy. Venture in that sense was a perfect fit, right? It's, an, it's a place where I can work with some of the most talented people in the world 
uh, focus on really the most high impact things. And all the people that typically we work with are very good, you know, at um, at executing through other people. Um, so it was really a function of of getting to know myself. And over time, you know, I really do enjoy helping other people do their best work. Uh, and I think venture is a great place to be able to do that. Interesting. You've mentioned that you moved from being an operator to an investor. Was there anything that you have to learn or unlearn, you know, kind of mindset shift that you have to make between these two roles? There's a there's a ton. You know, one of the most difficult aspects of making that transition for me was moving from a very kind of there's always stuff to do environment where you get immediate feedback on how you're doing to venture where really it's it's up to you to initiate whatever there is to do. And as you know, uh, you don't get feedback very quickly, if at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it relates to feedback on how companies are doing and how good you are as an investor, that may take seven to 10 years to come. Right? Exactly. And, and that's incredibly unsettling and, uh, and very tough because for a long time, at least, I just wondered if I was any good at this. Sometimes I still do wonder if I'm any good at this. And so that comfort with, uh, with ambiguity was something that I, you know, took me a while to get comfortable with trusting myself in the absence of having these feedback loops and trusting the work that I was doing. And I would say one of the other things that, that I really had to learn was a lot of, you know, as an operator, you'll spend a lot of time on the detailing, right? And thinking things through very carefully as a venture investor. I think it's really important. At least one of the things that I I've learned to do is to focus, is to focus on the end state and the size of the prize and, and not, uh, to appreciate what can come in the way, but not to get overly uh, dragged down by what can come in the way. And that, I think, took me some time. It's, again, to do with, with comfort taking risk. On the unlearning side, I think the biggest thing I had to unlearn was this um, desire and instinct to put my stamp on the solution, to be prescriptive, mm. uh, or to, to really think that my answer was was the only answer or or the best answer and instead to approach every situation really pretty first principles on the basis of what was happening there and and ultimately then to help the founder get to his or her best answer and right answer rather than again trying to trying to be overly prescriptive that's great Talking about feedback loop, if any, if anyone, you've probably had the taste of one of the fastest feedback loop uh, as the first venture investor into Udan, which has, you know, uh, achieved the coveted unicorn status in the span of just two years. Wanted to, you know, with that as a context, uh, wanted to get a sense of, you know, what do you look for when you are investing in startup in emerging market, particularly given that you've said you just mentioned earlier, you also done a bit of venture investing in um, the U.S. Yeah. So love to yeah. hear your thoughts on what do you, do you actually look for um, to get, you know, to, to catch the coveted unicorns, um, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I, I wish I wish I knew that I was catching them when I was investing. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's always a little bit easier in the in the rearview mirror. You know, the first thing that I would say is uh, is that just to put my answer in context is, as you know, Pin, I, I've tended to invest very early so perhaps two thirds of the companies I've invested in 
if not more, were pre-revenue at the time that we would have invested. And perhaps 30 to 40% of those would have been pre-product. And mm. Udan was an, it was an example of a company that was pre-product. And I, and I often like investing and certainly pre-product market fit. And over time, I, I, I've sort of built comfort investing that early because I actually think that some of the very early data of a company is often as much noise as it is signal. And as human beings, we'll interpret the data to fit the narrative that, that we sort of have in our heads, right? Mm-hmm. And so I actually think that in the absence of data, I'm forced to think more clearly about what really matters. And to me, that is, it's, it's, this is not going to be new. It's quality of the team, and we can talk about what that means. It's what I like to think of as the surface area for the business. And I think of that a little bit differently as ta- than TAM, and we can talk about that. And then finally, the business model dynamics, although, you know, and here I talk about, you know, I think about things like uh, scale economies or network effects with, you know, the underlying quality of the business and the margin characteristics. Although over time on this third bucket, I've tended to be more comfortable again with change because I found that the best entrepreneurs will navigate that, you know, and it will evolve over time, provided that the entrepreneur has a real appreciation of what can create outsized equity value. But those are the three things. As it relates to people, it's very, very specific to the, the, the type of business. What I would look for in a consumer startup that is likely to be quite capital intensive and, and have high, compet- high competitive intensity is going to be very different than what, what I may look for in an enterprise company. You know, that's perhaps in more in an earlier phase where it's really about building right product and then over time, you know, getting GTM right. So I think there's no single answers to to the entrepreneur question, but I do think that founders that can articulate their vision very clearly, and that gets to then their ability to sell, whether you're selling to employees or investors or to customers, I think that's a really important skill. I think their ability to grasp the business and everything they need to do horizontally, because if you think about what a founder needs to do well, they need to really understand their markets. They need to execute on the right strategy or identify the right strategy. They need to recruit well. They need to understand GTM. They need to understand how to raise capital. They need to understand competitive dynamics, what's going on in the industry globally, um, how to ultimately navigate to the right business model. There's a whole bunch of things that, that founders need to do. And I find that there are some who are very comfortable you know, almost the horizontality and the adaptability, their adaptability of sort of an ability to engage in all of these areas, while at the same time, also being able to engage at 50,000 feet very strategically, and then go all the way down to 100 feet and be very detail oriented. You know, those are some things that, that over time I've learned to look for. And then perhaps an additional thought is founders that are really talent magnets. In emerging markets like India, Talent, you know, the top talent is quite scarce. And so, and, and ultimately, I believe that, well, companies are just collections of people. And so you've got to have the best people on your side. And I think founders that appreciate that and then can identify and attract and retain those kinds of people um, are very strong. 
Excellent. Any, you know, types of founders that you try to avoid or, you know, maybe they are your pet peeves? Yeah. Um, none, none, none that I actively try and avoid, actually. Uh, but I have, over time, had to work uh, on being able to stay in conversation with a certain type of founder that historically would have made me uncomfortable. And I likely would have stepped away from and passed on. And, and I've learned from, from the mistakes that I've made that uh, that wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, and, and typically, it's the people that are most different from me, mm. right, yeah. that in a sense provoke me the most. And look, at least, I mean, I think it's true for most of us human beings. We don't like to be provoked. <laughs> we don't like to be challenged, um, we, you know, we we're comfortable with our worldviews. And when someone shows up that, you know, can be very aggressive in contradicting or pointing out why those worldviews may not be right and perhaps presenting conflicting ones of their own, that is always, you know, that's tough. At least I find that tough initially to, to engage with, especially when it's combined with a very salesy, heavy on narrative, you know, type of, um, type of delivery. So, so these founders who are super salesy, very heavy on narrative, challenge my kind of current conceptual map, provoke me. Those are the ones that I would say historically made me uncomfortable. And, and again, I'm like most people, I don't like being uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> so, so I would turn away from it. Over time, you know, I've, I've learned to realize that those people are are special in their own way. I don't want to kind of impose my value system on other people. That's not my job. My job is to really understand whether the person in front of me can potentially, you know, build something really big, whether they have the vision, the ambition, the aspiration to build something really big and the understanding of a market. And, and now I, I, I actually try and tune into my discomfort and I use that as a signal to sort of engage even more deeply and pay even more attention to what's in front of me um, and in a sense to work twice as hard to stay engaged in and really understand whether this is one of those kinds of founders. So yeah, that's uh, that's how I think about that issue, Ben. Thank you. That was a super authentic answer. And I, I feel you. I'm sure a lot of investors feel that as well. On the similar line on you know, investing into emerging markets like India, what do people often overlook? This is going to sound really simple. I think they overlook the fact that these markets are very different than, <laughs> you know, than other markets. Um, and that presents both challenge and opportunity. I, I find that people that or investors that are not as tuned into some of the nuances, what we'll tend to see is, is more copycat type investing. That assumes that the same underlying conditions exist in India for a company to get created that exist in another market, which may be true, but often it will not be true. And I think it presents opportunity because there's the ability for companies to innovate and write their own playbooks that are very, very unique for that particular emerging market. And a lot of our successes have come from those kinds of companies. Indian Energy Exchange, which operated or operates an electronic market for power, is now a public company. We led the Series A there in 2010. 
you would never have thought that you could trade power, electricity, um, electronically in India uh, in 2010, right? And when, and when you look at, you know, where you can do this in other parts of the world, the answer is not in many places, right? But there's a very specific set of reasons why India needed that, why the market structure supported it, and why it was a very it's a classic marketplace business with network effects. Um, at the time they went public, I think 75% operating margin. It's really a software business. Similarly, companies like uh, Oyo, as different from Airbnb, or Baiju's, you know, more full stack, Oyo, more mid to full stack, Udan, um, ShareChat. A lot of our successes have actually been in companies that are writing the playbooks for this region and really appreciate the, the nuance of, of this market. And I'll just give you one, one example. I think in, in emerging markets, the starting point for a lot of companies is very different. What do I mean by that? I mean that the existing infrastructure is at a different level than it might be in developed markets. So whether you take ride sharing and kind of the existing fleet and quality of vehicles, or whether you take e-commerce and the supply chain, right? Or a company like uh, Oyo and Hospitality, and again, the quality of supply. And because the infrastructure is, is much less developed in these markets, I think for startups in the West that can build on top of prevailing infrastructure, and therefore be largely product, can be largely product or engineering-led businesses. In, in emerging markets, I think these startups that are attacking the same type of opportunity actually need to build much more capability. They'll often end up looking like they're doing more than they should, right? Investors like businesses that are very focused, Right, because the more you take on, the the higher the complexity, the higher the probability of failure. But in these markets, you have to take more on. You can't solve e-commerce without solving for supply chain. Right? You can't solve for for ride sharing without, frankly, working to improve the the quality of of supply, um, and maybe even employing drivers and training them. And so, I think we see more full stack businesses more ecosystem or horizontal businesses than we would see in developed markets. It does mean these companies are harder to build. It does likely mean that they're more capital intensive, but it also means that for the founders that can build them, uh, they end up, they can end up being incredibly large and, and defensible. And so that's one example of a very meaningful difference um, relative to developed markets. It's so true. Uh, you've had the opportunity to go, go on many, many journeys with different found, successful founders in emerging markets. Um, can you help us, you know, kind of summarize, you know, the secret sauce, you know, you think that kind of thread through all these um, different journeys for as they built for emerging markets? I'm not sure that there's any secret sauce to building specifically for emerging markets. I Founders here have to do the same things that they need to do in other markets to build successful or outlier companies. You've got to identify a real need and an unmet need in, in a large market. You've, you've got to be very tuned into that need, into that customer, and, and have a really good ability to translate 
sort of what needs to be built into into product and serve that customer really well. You've got to hire and attract great talent. You've got to really navigate the market strategically and bring clarity in an, in in what otherwise is currently an environment of ambiguity. And I think the best founders do that very well. And then you've got to be able to sell and attract <laughs> capital, right? Um, and, and go win your first customer and attract the best talent in order to to be successful. And I and I and I don't mean to simplify it because there's so much more founders obviously do, but fundamentally I think while the nuances and the markets and maybe the choices may be different in emerging markets, right? So for example, you may, your founder may choose to be more full stack, you know, in, in a market like India, than then, then focus on the product layer or, or simply aggregate in a, in a developing market. I think fundamentally in terms of the building founders need to do the same thing. Um, everywhere. And this is something we've seen at, at Lightspeed, you know, a really talented founder, ultimately, they may look different, they may sound different, they may use different words, but they're saying the same thing, mm. no matter which market they operate in. Yeah, that's so true. And in your experience, visual, you know, any, I think, you know, as every startup, you know, you hit a, a, a challenge, and then you kind of hack through that, and achieve a new milestone, right? And that happens a lot of time through the whole journey of, of a startup. Uh, any good stories to share with us, you know, um, that you've seen across growth, high growth companies like Oyo Rooms and Udan? Yeah, you know, I, I think for me, the learning is really that when, when founders turn their attention to something, it's amazing how much they can move the needle. I saw this, I, I would say perhaps, for the first time in this way at Oyo, where once the company had product market fit in, so the way that company was built was focused very much on just Gurgaon, which is um, a city on the outskirts of New Delhi. And that was their first market. And just focused on Gurgaon for the first nine months to, to tune the model and get to product market fit and economic viability. And I had this conversation with Ritesh very early on where it felt like this was really working, right? We're able to sign up property owners. We're able to drive significant lift in occupancy. Marketing cost was very low because customers really were looking for trusted places to stay. And the take rates were, you know, in the region of 25 to 27%. And at that point we said, well, we should, we should just take this business across the country. And, um, Ritesh is, um, you know, is exceptionally good at, at, at scaling rapidly, and, and he did that. Now, as that happened, uh, over time, you, the company at some point got to such scale and trajectory that it was hard to maintain the quality of experience, right, for the, every customer at every time. Part of it is just the, the law of large numbers and the fact that there is an offline component to the service delivery, and then, you know, at scale and, and rapid growth. You know, to Ritesh's credit, at that time, scaling the network out was the right thing to do instead of establishing market market dominance. But he wasn't blind to this. And then, you know, I remember very clearly he walked into a board meeting one day and essentially said, we're going to have to put a pause on growth for six to nine months. And we're now going to go focus on customer experience and, and um, 
and then also uh, refine unit economics. Because that growth, there had been a very competitive phase and, and that growth uh, had come at, at some cost to unit economics. And now when the company and when Ritesh really focused on those problem statements, again, just the needle moved massively. So I, I think the net of it is that so much of this is about the founders making the right choices about what to focus on at that point in time, you know, and whether it's growth or whether it's something else, I think sometimes growth is growth is celebrated more than making amazing hires. Growth is celebrated more than customer N NPS. You know, growth is, is, is celebrated more than kind of nailing, nailing product. But my point is, and growth is certainly important, but it's when a founder kind of makes the right choices and he or she is able to really train um, their attention to that, I've usually found the needle really moves. I, I love this story because in itself, it's like the, the need to ungrow to actually grow, right? To like focus yeah. on something It's never else. a straight line. Yeah, yeah it's, it's never really yeah. a straight, straight line. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I want to ask, you know, come back to you a little bit, you know, on, on, on your role as an investor. You know, what is, what do you think is your superpower or what do you try to hone as your superpower if it's not there yet um, when it comes to helping your portfolio company? Uh, like everyone, I'm work in progress. So um, let's not, let's not call it a superpower or anything <laughs> like that. Um, I think that what's really helped me work well with portfolio companies, I'd say, I'd say there's two things uh, that, that are foundational. One is building trust with the founders. And the second is listening. And, and I say that these two are foundational because if you don't have trust, then I don't think anything really matters, right? If you don't have trust, but you think you know the right answer, there's nothing you can really do with that right answer because you likely can't influence the founder. And, and I think the ability to be a partner and, and exercise influence in the right way is so key to being able to assist a portfolio company. Similarly, if you're not listening, then you know, we're not going to be really proposing ideas or thoughts that are based on what's really in front of us right now, right? Invariably, we'll bring kind of I don't know, some patent recognition or some, some baggage to the table that may cloud judgment, right? And so I think that, that these two are, are very important to me. And then just stylistically, I think a couple of other things that have helped uh, that I've received feedback from founders on that they find uh, useful is sort of really tuning into what matters. And it comes back to that piece pin just now we talked about 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 priorities and, and focusing right now on, on what matters because so much about building a company successfully is, is making the right choices at the right time. And founders, they're in the day-to-day, -day, they're in the ops, and there's 50 things that, they need to, that they're thinking about, right? So the ability to help isolate, hey, what are the really most critical two or three things or one thing Back to this idea that when a founder spends his or her time on that one or two things, the needle will move. The good news is if you focus on the right things, good things will happen. But if you don't, good things won't happen, right? And so really helping founders tune into what really matters 
Um, it's ultimately their answer, not mine. So that's why, but it's, it's the process of helping with that. And the way I go about doing that is typically asking questions um, rather than sort of, you know, showing up really with my own. I mean, if, if I feel I need to, and this again comes back to the foundation of trust, I think I build enough trust with founders where if I really do feel strongly about something, you know, I will be more, you know, prescriptive, not again, imposing my view, but in terms of here's what I really think. But I would say 95% of the time, my style is, is more, is more questioning because I don't know the answer. I'm genuinely just asking the question and navigating to the answer together. And then another segue to how you're building Lightspeed um, in India uh, in Southeast Asia. You essentially build a team from ground zero, from zero, right? What is your leadership philosophy to building out a world-class investment team? It is that if we can attract the most talented people and if we can build a firm where those people can do their best work, are inspired to do their best work, are enabled to do their best work and supported to do their best work and to become very successful, then the firm will be very successful. Um, that's one. The second is that I think in venture specifically, it's really important to understand something as holistically as we can because there's so much ambiguity. It's not, there is no definitive right or wrong early on. But what's really important is that we shouldn't just be seeing one slice or one angle. And so as a result, kind of being very deliberate about piecing together a team that collectively can see something in totality or holistically. What that means is a set of people who will attack something from different angles. They'll see it from different angles because they're very different people and they bring a very different range of experiences. I find that to be incredibly powerful. The challenge that can often present is, you know, when people are too different, it creates a management challenge. And, and also, if you're too different, then it's kind of where's, where's the alignment and we need alignment. And so it's sort of this, this tension between kind of having really a really different and diverse group of people, yet sharing common alignment and a shared vocabulary right so that we are actually all rowing in the right in the same direction but we'll just come at it differently right so those are a couple of principles i think that hopefully will resonate with you and and reflect in how we've uh, how we've built the team but unsurprisingly uh it all comes back to being about people and being about how how you enable uh people to be successful because i think if they are then then companies are well, as part of the team, I can definitely feel like you're intense, very intentionally doing that. So um, that's great. They told that. Now, Visual, you're at the top of your game, or at least a lot of people think you are. Who do you look up to as mentor and inspiration, and why? I, I, I wish you knew what it felt like to be at the top of your game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, in this business, first of all, it's a tough business where you know it's full of people that really you know are bright and want to succeed. And I'm no different, at least in the, in the wanting to succeed area. And, um, you know, but it's also, there's a lot of, there's a lot of self doubt along the way, you know, until you have any success, you wonder if you will ever have success. Uh, when you have success, you wonder if you just got lucky. And, uh, and so there's, there's just a lot 
a lot more to do and always learning, always learning and still always getting stuff wrong. Uh, so, um, honestly, I, I think, uh, it's really important that, um, that we all acknowledge that we're constantly work in progress. Um, in terms of who, who I look up to, you know, the, this is something that has come up in the past when I have conversations with, with, with friends is there is no, there's not really been a single mentor for me. Um, there's been some, there's been different people that inspire me in, in different ways. And I'll give you some examples. And then over time, it's sort of like, I find that where my growth really comes from is people that are very different than me. I alluded to this earlier on, right? Um, because it forces me to confront myself and challenge whether the way I am right now is, it, it, you know, serves me best. So in terms of inspirations and in some areas, you know, one person that, that I wish I, I knew personally, but is, is a real source of inspiration for me is is Roger Federer. Oh, that came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And the reason is that, you know, here is someone who really seems to have, I mean, well, not seems to have, has achieved excellence, right? Truly elite, um, legendary, yet seems to be an amazing father and an amazing husband, right? So his has all the work ethic and likely intensity and talent and everything you need to put in to be successful and rise because that that doesn't come without sacrifice. Um, you know, yet at least at the personal level, um, we don't see that sacrifice in the sense that you, you get the sense that there's some degree of balance there. You know, who's probably got to have the intensity and emotional fortitude and strength again, mental strength to do what he's done. Uh, yet, you know, will will cry after winning his 18th major Grand Slam, right? So has the vulnerability yet, right? And the sense that even though there's been so much success, you just don't take anything for granted. And the next success still means so much, right? Even at that point, it's just incredible. So there's many aspects about, about him that, um, you know, that really appeal to me and inspire me. And then, you know, in different areas, I think there's, there's investors who inspire me in different ways. There's uh, spiritual leaders who inspire me, uh, <laughs> you know, in different ways. And then like, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there's some people kind of when people are very different than me, investors who have very different styles from me, I realize that that's, that's where I can learn from, you know, because that's where I'm going to be challenged. And so that's a lot of where my growth comes from. Excellent. Well, uh, Roger Federer, if you're listening to this, um, please do give us a ping and uh, we'd love to put you in touch with Bajol. If you're not Roger yeah. Federer or you're just an entrepreneur, do that as well. <laughs> also, we'll come to the tail we'll come to the tail end of this conversation, Bajol. So just quick, short and answer, you know, kind of fire around. First question, what makes a great VC investor? Curiosity and the ability to synthesize and make sense of information. What advice do you have for our audience of VC investors and innovators? Play to your strengths and deliberately surround yourself with the best people that are complementary to you. How do you stay sharp? I read a fair amount and I make time to think. Ah, 
It's awesome. Good. Thank you so much, Bejul. Uh, I think this was a great conversation. You know, when I speak to folks like you, I wish I had a mini series just on you alone so that I <laughs> we can yeah, learn much you. more uh, than uh, what 30 minutes can do for us. It's been uh, super inspiring and, you know, super educational um, conversation. And, you know, I hope you had as much fun sharing about your journey as I had for learning. I did. Thank you, Pin. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows. 